0: insects are actually quite intelligent to fly, avoid obstacles, find food, shelter. My goal is to better understand this kind of intelligence, to make robots as capable as the little insects.
1: Hello, I'm Sue Nelson, and welcome to the Create the Future podcast, brought to you by the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering, celebrating engineering visionaries and inspiring creative minds. years ago, I visited Delft University of Technology, TU Delft, in the Netherlands. And while I was there, I saw a flying robotic insect, weighing less than 30 grams, with four flapping wings, about 30 centimetres across in total. And it was called a Delfly. The Delfly could do some pretty nifty aerial acrobatics and was being demonstrated in the university's Faculty of Aerospace Engineering. And today's podcast guest is a professor of micro-air vehicles within that faculty at the Micro-Air Vehicles Laboratory, or MAVLAB. Hido de Kroon works on drones and robotic insects. His academic background focused on artificial intelligence, but now he combines AI, engineering and biology within his work on small autonomous robots. As a child, he enjoyed playing football and reading, but there was one nature project he undertook that gave a hint of what was to come.
0: I think I was eight years old or something, and then I was really intrigued by these uh, ants in our garden how they were walking about and uh, i was like okay i'm gonna study them you know so i I took this like a notebook and a pen and i started to make observations and and i I noticed that they were of course you know carrying food up and down so i thought like okay let's start with honey they must love that (laughs) so i actually put a pool of honey somewhere on the pavement and then i saw the ants walking into this honey, and they were just drowning. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I was like, oh, I felt so bad for them. <laughs> I was like, and that was the end of my career as a biologist, actually.
1: Yes, I, I don't think we've started a podcast before with mass destruction, but there we go. What sort of observations were you making? How many drowned? <laughs> no,
0: no, no. I, I, I thought, I, I guess I thought they would take it somewhere. some way. It was not very smart thinking, of course, but uh, that they would take it with them. So I, I, I wanted, I guess, to observe they would organize and, and take food with them, but honey was, of course, a very unhappy choice, especially for the ants, but also for myself, I guess. And uh, so then, uh, then I stopped that uh, kind of uh, line of research. Yeah, and then when I was a bit older, uh, my brother started to program. So we had this like uh, Commodore 64, like really old uh, computer now, uh, but we had it at home. You could play games on it, but you could also program a bit on it. So I started to program play some games. In these games, of course, you had opponents, and they were typically computer opponents. So, uh, yeah, not like the online games that you have now where you play against other people. And yeah, often, of course, these computer opponents were not super smart yet. So, and that was the kind of thing that really triggered me to start thinking about artificial intelligence, actually. And what I looked at specifically during my PhD was visual perception, because yeah vision is is very important in in nature mainly because you can see things pretty far away already and you can look at things yeah in quite a high detail and and we as humans we have the impression that the world around us is colored and highly detailed and actually this is not the way we see it if you, if you really look at the eye and we only see at a very high resolution in a central area of our view which is called the fovea And we actually move our eyes around a lot. And and by moving our eyes around, we can sample the environment and we look at things and we think we see them and we see them then in high detail. But the images we make are actually pretty bad, you know, especially towards the periphery. But we don't experience the world like that. And that is because, for one, we look around a lot with our eyes, so roughly three times per second. You notice this if, uh, if you ever get uh, hurt in your eye muscles because then you then you feel like ouch 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 <laughs> all day long so we do look around a lot and we see what we expect to see in a sense and then We move our eyes to sample and to confirm that we actually see what we think we will see. So I don't know if this is very vague, but uh, that's what I worked on during my PhD.
1: It makes sense. As you were talking, actually, I was sort of looking ahead and then looking at my periphery vision and then realizing, oh, yeah, it's slightly blurred. I hadn't really noticed that before. When did you go from human beings to other types of creatures?
0: During my PhD, I was working on on vision algorithms and how they could, for example, find objects in images by moving around a kind of fovea, an artificial fovea. I made algorithms that were much more efficient than the algorithms uh, that were used until then because people were going over a full image and at every pixel looking, for example, if you look for a face, is there a face here? No. Oh, go to the next pixel. Is there a face here? If you think about a human, if you look into the sky, you think, oh yeah, that's the sky. And there's probably not going to be a face there. So you look down. And this is the kind of thing that I learned my computer vision algorithms to do. And it led to very efficient vision. And then I started to really think about robots as small robots. And during a research day that I did during my PhD in Switzerland, I got in touch with drones. And I was fascinated by them because yeah, they cannot carry a lot of sensors. They can carry only very little processing. So my conclusion was, yeah, if you go to really small flying robots, then they need to be super efficient in their sensors, but also their brain. So you really need this kind of efficient AI and natural artificial intelligence that I like to study. And, and that is when I decided to go to Delft and work on such small flying robots.
1: Now, I've been to the University of Delft and I've seen your rather amazing faculty of aerospace engineering and and it felt like I was entering a playground. There were people with drones. There was sort of parts of aircraft. It it was huge. Describe it for me for what's actually inside that enormous space.
0: The bigger context is that there's many groups doing all kinds of experiments. Different engineers play with what they like most. <laughs> so some people are playing with lasers while well, playing. I mean, doing research, <laughs> yes. but. Uh,
1: feels like
0: play, yes. Yeah, I mean, I hope that they have the same kind of feeling I have when I uh, do research with drones. It really feels like, uh, yeah, also a bit like playing indeed. I mean, uh, it is very nice. So, and other people work with like materials, new kinds of materials that they are testing with big machines, trying to rip them apart or, you know, seeing when fatigue starts to uh, come into play. We also have student teams that make actual planes. So, and also new types of, planes that should be much greener than uh, current airplanes. They then make scaled versions, of course, Uh, but uh, so there's a lot happening in that whole, from very different departments, uh, from materials and where they look at uh, new kinds of materials to new kinds of plane designs. And what we have there is what we call our cyber zoo, which is like a big black cube and on the inside you have some artificial grass to make it look a bit natural to our robots walking robots and flying robots in there. And our dream is a bit that we will have robots in there in the end that are functioning day and night, also when we're not there, and that it becomes a little bit like a butterfly garden or something if you step in. Yeah, we have a, a motion tracking uh, system in that uh, yeah, black cube. And that's why the cube is black as well, to block out uh, daylight, which has uh, sometimes a lot of infrared in it and uh, this motion tracking system is, is dependent on infrared, so we don't want external sources or too much. We use this system mostly to track what our drones do for, for scientific articles, but we work on techniques that allow drones to really fly completely by themselves. So they're definitely able also to fly outside this cube, but we do want to track them during the experiments.
1: I must say a little bit about the fly, the drone that I saw when I was there and we heard a, a a little bit of its buzzing movement at the beginning of the the podcast that I'd recorded on that that visit I was astounded when I saw it because it looks like an insect a large insect it flaps its wings which you sort of don't ex- I didn't expect anyway but what got me the most with the sort of wow factor was how nimble and nifty it was and the speed at which it could change direction. I mean, you made it look easy, but I'm I'm pretty sure it wasn't to get to something like that.
0: Oh, indeed. The Delphi project in which we develop these flapping drones started already in 2005, led by some colleagues of mine and a student team to make the first version. So that was before I arrived as well. Yeah, it has been a long development in which we always wanted a flapping wing drone that would be able to fly, but also observe the environment. So so that you could do an observation mission, but later so that it could look itself at the environment and fly by itself. And what we noticed at some point is that uh, the kind of the flapping wing drones we were making initially got into trouble when there was even the lightest drafts uh, of, for example, an air conditioning. This was because it was flapping, but it was steering with a tail, a bit like a plane does. Yeah, surfaces, let's say, control surfaces. So in, in 2018, yeah, one of our postdocs, uh, Matjake Rasek, succeeded in making a model that actually steers with the wings, as insects do. So if an insect wants to turn to the right, then it can flap harder on the left for example you know what I mean so a bit
1: like rowing
0: yeah exactly yeah exactly like rowing uh, actually these these uh, small flapping wing drones but especially insects they fly at a smaller scale and then the air becomes more viscous so it's to them it's also a little bit more like swimming than, than flying almost uh, in oh. a sense
1: so what sort of size is it at the, at the moment then
0: Yeah, so the delphi, which is actually called the delphi nimble, the one you saw. (laughs) So very nice that you characterized it as nimble. It has a 33 centimeter wingspan and it weighs 29 grams. You would see it as quite a big, a bit of a prehistoric insect, if you see it. But yeah, it looks very natural, like you say, uh, like a big butterfly. But yeah, this new one, because it steers with the wings, is very agile.
1: So you work with biologists as well as engineers and incorporating AI so that you have this whole multidisciplinary package effectively in one drone. Yeah,
0: definitely. Yeah. So we, we work with biologists. I think it's very nice because yeah, I get all kinds of inspiration when reading the biological articles or articles about biology, but also talking to biologists. And sometimes they come with new findings that we then try out. But typically what we find is that when we try out the things that they think happen in the brains of insects, then we actually find also novel things that may not have looked like a problem to the biologist. Because a biologist, when, it, when, when he, he or she looks at, a, for example, a landing honeybee, yeah, the honeybee knows how to land, you know? So then they, they, they look at what it does and get our data and think like, oh, it's following this strategy, for example. But then if we try that out on a drone, We run into all kinds of problems that the honeybee is actually solving, but which are not visible to the biologist necessarily.
1: What are the possible applications of the fly or or similar drones?
0: These drones, they're very lightweight, so they're very safe. And that's a very important feature. They're also beautiful, by the way. (laughs) So this leads to a number of new applications. So one application is that after COVID passes, hopefully, we will have shows again. Uh, you already have uh, swarms of drones being used in shows for light or, or whatever, but these flapping wings can give an extra nice visual effect, so we think in shows they will be very popular. But we also think about more serious applications in a sense like applying them in greenhouses. In the Netherlands, we have huge greenhouses in which we grow all kinds of crop, and uh, there are really many tasks for which drones could be used inside these greenhouses. In these greenhouses, you have people working there, walking there, so they need to be safe at any point, I would say, and it would be best if they don't need to adapt to the drones. And because I know there, there are companies actually also working on drones in greenhouses, but yeah, the drones are then typically a kilo or heavier. They're pretty big. They have uh, fast turning rotors. These drones you know, do pose a risk in terms of safety. And it means that, yeah, you would have to lock off a part of the greenhouse when it's flying there and things like that. And this is, to me, simply unacceptable. So that's why we believe that this kind of new, very lightweight, safe, soft, had a wing, if it touches you, it really doesn't do any damage it's like yeah, you being hit by an insect.
1: Um, but what would it actually do in the greenhouse?
0: It would look at the crop. Uh, that's one of the first things I think it could do. So so also there I see all paths towards the future. But the first thing I think drones will do is uh, look at the crop in order to timely uh, detect uh, diseases or pests. Because this is a huge problem to a greenhouse. Typically they detect it quite late and then they need to throw away yeah, a large part of the plants. That you can prevent if you detect them earlier. But you've perhaps never been to a greenhouse like that, but you have really the big rows of plants where often you cannot walk in between them. So, yeah, you have to look at the distance. And what they actually do is they put up sticky papers to see if there is a flying form of the pest. Yeah, but uh, yeah, you would like to detect them much earlier in the crop. So detection of pests, diseases, looking at, you know, how well the plants are growing. Because, yeah, you can evaluate that with normal light cameras, but you can also look, you know, with different spectra at plants and see whether they're stressed, whether they need more water. Or... But later, they can actually start acting. So they can, for example, not only detect that there is a pest somewhere, but then also drop larvae of natural enemies of these pests. They could yeah, actually help in pollination at some point, I think. And then we're talking about a bit longer in the future.
1: So it really is using what you've done throughout your career, which is looking at AI and, and the vision aspect of it, but really this miniaturization so that the technology can fit on a, a very lightweight robotic drone.
0: Exactly, yeah. And that is, that is very, very challenging. And if you, if you look at uh, the state of the art in artificial intelligence for robots, for example, self-driving cars, What you see is that most engineers try to represent the complexity of the task in the head of the robot so that's very nice of course but you know it requires very high resolution heavy power hungry sensors it requires big computers that make large maps maintain them keep them in memory and uh, if you look at insects they actually try to solve tasks in as simple a simpler way as possible and so by not representing this complexity in their head, but by following yeah, simple behaviors to solve complex tasks and that is what we try to do with our robots as well
1: so a bit like how you were interested in ants as a, a child the sort of next stage is getting these uh, robotic insects working together in swarms
0: exactly yeah so this concept works at all levels so for example, one thing we also work on is odor source localization or gas source localization. So suppose that you have a gas leak in a building. It would be nice if you could send robots in that can sense the gas and then find the leak for you. And then at least can indicate you immediately that the leak is here. Now, this is a thing that engineers have worked on. And what they then try to do is they make again a map and they model the diffusion of this gas in the head of the robot. And this becomes, again, you know, a very computationally complex problem. Well, if you look at nature, this is something that animals do all day long. For example, I now have an orange on my table and, uh, you know, fruit flies are, I don't know if they, they go come to the orange itself, but they definitely come to my bananas. They find this fruit by following odors for a large extent. So that they don't need to make any complex map or be calculating what the airflow will do in their heads. They just, you know, use simple behaviors that will solve this task. And in swarms, it's the same. And then uh, the concept is that the individual insects or robots are very limited, but together they can tackle these more complex tasks. And and what you were referring to with the ants and what I, I guess I tried to study with the honey as a kid was that, you know, if ants carry food back to the nest, they leave a kind of pheromone that other ants can perceive, can smell. And uh, ants that are outbound, yeah, that are going to find food, they actually follow a path with more pheromone with a higher probability. In this way, they find the shortest path to the food. And the reason is that this pheromone, yeah, it's left on the ground, let's say, but it evaporates over time. If you take a very long path home, then yeah, much of your pheromone has already evaporated by the time you get home. But if you take a short path, then the pheromone is still quite present on the path.
1: And so what for you then would be your ultimate aim with the research that you're doing now? Yeah, that's a, that's
0: a good question. Uh, so uh, yeah, I would love to get closer to the capabilities of such insects uh, because sometimes yeah, people say, like, yeah, the idea of swarming and, and this kind of intelligence is that the robot should be stupid. No, <laughs> I mean, you know, insects are actually quite intelligent. <laughs> but the type of intelligence is, I think, amazing because if you think of a fruit flyer, it's it's it weighs close to nothing, it's super tiny. It has around a hundred thousand neurons. That's very tiny. We have like sixty-eight billion neurons in our in our minds, but it's able to fly, avoid obstacles, find food, shelter, socially interact with other fruit flies, it's able to learn, etc. So it's, it has this huge repertoire of behaviors, uh, which it does very successfully. And that's much more than our drones can do now. And, and as robotics researchers, we typically take one thing like landing, you know, and work on it for a long time. And even then we can le- we don't land as well as fruit flies do. But I'm trying to yeah, my goal is to better understand this kind of intelligence and then harness it for us to be able to make tiny, lightweight, safe robots as capable as these uh, little insects and, and perhaps go beyond as well.
1: Could you take these drones and say instead of putting big, heavy rovers on the surface of Mars, for instance, in the future might people rethink and send lots of of miniature flying drones, each with their own particular sensor on instead.
0: Yes, I think that's a a great thought. And the European Space Agency is actually working on that. And I spent some time in Delft and then I went to the European Space Agency because actually the problems in space are a bit similar to the problems on drones because you want to take as little weight as possible into space and the kind of processors they have typically need to be space hardened which means that they're much less fast than what we're used to uh, on earth so basically they also have a desire for lightweight low computational solutions and where today they send big rovers that are very uh, well engineered so that they you know and and that have many tools on board it's like a driving laboratory basically in the future indeed we may go to missions where uh, you have indeed many tiny drones, for example, and we had had the first uh, unmanned helicopter flying on Mars this year. And there's also always this risk, right? So, for example, I once talked to one of the engineers of one of the rovers and he said, yeah, it's always a tension between the scientist and the engineer because the scientist is like, oh, I want to look over that cliff and engineers like yeah there's no way i'm going to drive it clear near to that cliff right because yeah if it falls in then you cannot just go and repair it so but with a swarm you know you may be able to take a little bit more risk because yeah if you have indeed a swarm of many of these tiny things and a few of them get lost that is acceptable and so that and that is actually also one of the changes in mentality that we need in order to make swarm robotics successful is that people should realize that we will be able to do complex tasks with the tiny drones, but they may not always do the optimal thing. And some of them may get stuck a little bit like the fly that you see flying into your window. You can say, oh, a stupid animal. But yeah, this is the kind of thing we we will see with this kind of insect AI. And that yeah, should become acceptable as well.
1: Now, before we go, we often like asking for advice that you would give to people who have got that inkling that they might want to become an engineer of what whatever form you know what would your advice be
0: even if you may not think you're the typical engineer it doesn't mean that uh, you cannot you know advance things in engineering yeah, personally I studied AI which is kind of like a computer science study so, so I'm just saying that also people that are perhaps different from the engineering prototype you know you, you can definitely contribute by taking a different angle on engineering problems. I think it can be very refreshing and 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 give a lot of progress. And it also makes engineers more diverse. So that then again, it's like a, it's a bit like a self-reinforcing effect, right? Because we have a certain image of an engineer, and then you know people that don't think they fit that image, they don't choose to do engineering. But then you still get that same group of people doing it. And so nothing against that group, of course. But I'm just thinking that. If you don't feel that you fit this exact picture of what an engineer is, I would definitely still stimulate you to, you know, try out engineering things and and see if there's anything you like there, because it can actually be very valuable.
1: And great fun from the sound of it.
0: Yeah, keep close to what you love, I would say.
1: Professor Hido de Kroon, thank you very much for joining me on the Create the Future podcast. Thank you
0: very much for inviting me.
1: Find out more about the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering by following QE Prize on Twitter and Instagram or visit qeprize.org. Thanks for listening. Do join me again next time.